Welcome to another edition of Two Irish Guys Discussing Software. I nearly forgot. That's okay. We're here again. Another day, another evening, another morning, another June, I think. Are we June? June. We, we lose track of days, months. We're the 24th of June. 24th of June. Here we are recording. Precise. Yep. 24th of June. We are here to talk about... Uh, we've got a great guest, Dan Sheffield, who's been with us before, our uh, Danish lawyer based in Paris. We'll introduce Dan later. Um, we've got a great topic today, product liability or lack of accountability of the software publishers, big ERP players, those companies that you and I talk about a lot on this show. We're going to have a chat with Dan about that, you know, things that are close to our heart because yeah. as a company that provides a service to IBM software, we sometimes wonder, oh, are those things allowed? Are those things that they do what seems to be anti-competitive practices or hidden clauses in their contracts? The things we talk about, the stories from the street. Yeah, things yeah. That we talked about in the past, but big area. Big, big area. So looking forward to that. We're going to yeah. talk to Dan in a while. We have a couple of news stories, but uh, before we start that, I have to tell you, I had we had a great, a great two weeks this week. Do you know? I had we had two customer events that were a bit of fun. They were on Zoom. They were with a comedian that we used before called Bernie. He used to be called Sam in our Don't Be That Guy videos. You remember yeah, those? Yeah. Uh, if you don't know them, go to how, YouTube. We'll, how are you riding? Yeah. <laughs> That's how she riding. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So, yeah, we had, he's ended up in Spain and he's called Bernie and he hosted a virtual pub quiz for almost 10 people from our European customer base. Mm. Um, we had about 13 or so from our US customers last yeah, week and this week. Good. Yeah, So we did one hour on Zoom, which is hard now these days because we're on this stuff for so long now. We're sick and tired of it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was great. And, and I did a webinar last week as well. Oh, very good. Yeah, a webinar. Yeah. Who was that with? I was with Stephen Winnitz of Toyota. Very good. Yeah, we spoke about the journey with Originet, how he ended up buying from us. And we had a good chat for about an hour. So yeah, we, we, we had a number of people came to that as well. And mm-hmm. wait for it. I'm going out into the real world. Oh my gosh. I'm going to Paris. I must tell Dan when he's on you know, shortly. I'm going to Paris next week to, to, to get a, a bus or a train or some form of transport to go to a, a CRIP event, C R I P, if yeah. you yeah. picked up my excellent oh, French right accent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, CRIP event in, Par- in Deauville, in that lovely town in Normandy, Deauville, if you've ever been Normandy. there. Great oh, for nice. racing, by the way. You, you and I like our horse racing. Yeah. I must talk to you about the horse racing separately. Right. You must go to Cheltenham next year. Anyway, that's I'd, a separate... I'd love to do that, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's a separate conversation. But yeah. So first physical event in... I, I'm just so looking months, forward to it. Yeah. Months. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, we get to meet our French clients and uh, hopefully some more. Yes. Yeah. So we're, you're not the only one. Oh, out and about. Oh, sorry. Eventing. Take over. Not to not to use a horse racing pun or a horse pun there. Eventing, but well, our very own Mark O'Neill was on a a webinar with one of our partners, Software One, uh, talking to the Nordic community about mostly about us. Actually, it was about software asset management and how it pertains to third party software support. All right. I think it went very well. Um, hopefully, well attended. And we have our very first virtual happy hour in Germany oh it's a CIO happy hour yeah uh, next week now next. I will be attending but I won't be able to understand ah, anything because okay. I was told about 18 months or so ago not to bother learning German by somebody but which is probably a good idea but that will be hosted by our very own uh, Thorsten Schmiady and it's we have a guest speaker 
uh, Dr. Ulrich Arnold, who's the Geschäftsführer uh, von G- G- GKV Informatic. All right. Which is, he's the CEO. Geschäftsführer well, is a CEO. Geschäftsführer is the CEO, Geschäftsführer, or managing okay. director. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. And also, we have, uh, we're doing it in cooperation yeah, you, with. You did a good version of a German, uh, speaking German there. That's not bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's about, was ist das new normal? Uh, for CIOs, which if you didn't quite catch that, it's, I did. Yeah, we got that. Yeah, yeah. Even without German, yeah, we got that. That was great. Yeah. And Peter Kohler from uh, the Sindeo CIO Exchange is also going to be uh, co-hosting. So if you haven't yet, you know, uh, well, attended that, and you want to pretend. Yeah. Well, listen. There's been European. I know you're doing a lot of work on you know getting us up to up to speed in Europe. We got a lot of stuff going on in the US, and uh, we're now in 18 countries. We haven't just cracked Israel there, so we're now in 18 different countries. Yeah. So yeah. A lot of things happening. We're looking good, and it's good to be out and about, mm. and it's good to be able to thankfully invest in the business and do everything else. But this show, let's let's have a look at what's going on around the place. What's going on in the software world, in the software industry? Tell us what's the yeah, big news. Quite a lot of quite a lot of news. Uh, I'll start with some sad news, which is p- people may not know very well. Uh, John Ma- McAfee. They'll know of McAfee, yeah. uh, particularly if you're, if you're of maybe our age, and you'll have possibly installed it on your laptop or something you know uh, years ago but John McAfee uh, who, who, who created the software uh, back in 19, 1987 Santa Clara California unfortunately he died in a prison he was in a prison in Spain in Barcelona yeah yeah I think it was the, the IRS were trying to get him back to yeah US. he was being indicted for, for tax fraud and yeah. tax evasion he was 75 he was an eclectic character you know he spent time in you know places like Guatemala you know evading somebody or other and there was kind of rumours of yeah, potentially being involved in a murder investigation oh stop stop etc yeah. etc et he lived the life he wanted to lead, according to his spokesperson. But uh, but anyway, he died, and so our, our condolences to his family on that. But somebody who isn't dead, but they are a hundred. Who's that? It's IBM. Oh, I heard that. I heard that story. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, years old. Hundred years old. Nine, so yeah. nineteen eleven. I think I, I think the the Model T Ford came out around somewhere around the, the same time. Yeah, I'm not sure which whose reputation is still uh, still intact. But there's lots we could talk about. But the main thing, the man Thomas Watson, wasn't it? Watson, he, yeah. So he was brought in. Uh, he was brought in by Charles Flint, who founded what what used to be, used to be called CTR. So computing, tabulating, recording. Yeah, that because right? that's what they did. Yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah. Uh, but mostly the tabulating was what kind of took off. Yeah. Um, the recording wasn't that interesting, and they also had. They never got the computing right, did they? Weighing scales and stuff like that. (laughs) They got the computing computing right. right. But it took off from tabulating. But anyway, they brought in Thomas Watson to to kind of drive the business forward. And uh, he coined this catchphrase, think. Yeah. So everybody out there might know of, they might have had a think laptop or the think conferences that IBM used to have. And they probably still have them in in San Francisco, etc. So that's who he was. He he, He came up with that catchphrase. And also Watson is also known for, you know, there's Watson Marketing, Watson Health. So yeah, that's yeah. where that comes from. That's I never knew that. Yeah. That's fascinating. From, from, from kind of 1924 I, thereabouts. I heard you had a story about Microsoft. So there was people asleep. Was, was this what, what people during lockdown? They, yeah, the been, been asleep we on we the have job. been looking for a bad story about Microsoft. I heard they joined the two yeah. trillion dollar club. But anyway, yeah, tell a, us, is, there a, is, there, is there a remotely bad story? I did look here? for some. <laughs> is did, this the best we could come I up with? I did look for gum. I, I typed in salacious rumors, you know, <laughs> uh, Sachin Nadal, salacious rumors, Mark, whatever. There are know. none. 
uh, not many, but uh, they seem to be doing pretty good in the eyes of um, the eyes of the investor community. But they did have people sleeping on the job, as they as they say, but in their data centers during lockdown, which isn't a really particularly safe place to be because you know if you've ever been in a data center at night <laughs> or even during the daytime, they can be quite hot well, because I, of the very noisy. Noisy, fans hot, going on, and yeah. potentially very cold because of the don't press the red button because of, because of the, the the coolants. Anyway, Microsoft did their best to make them feel safe while they were locked down yeah. in their data centers. It's amazing, actually, innovation that comes out of people. Okay, this is a side story. I, um, yeah. I, when I worked in the travel industry, they had a mm. data center in, in Tokyo and a data center in London. And they had these AS four hundreds, these IBM systems. I yeah. remember. Oh, and wow. uh, at the time, they didn't put a little shield, a little plastic cover over the power button. Mm. And somebody accidentally, while moving something around, hit the thing with his knee, <laughs> and took down the entire nice. Asian market yeah, yeah. for for about three days. Well, they're dangerous places. These <laughs> dangerous places. So yeah. don't go trying to sleep in one. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they'll they'll allow them to, to get home at night time. But, uh, any, but anything on our friends Oracle? Well, just before we move on to Oracle, just oh sorry, I, I, sorry. Well, you know, just because you mentioned it because Microsoft did uh, get into the two trillion dollar valuation club uh, albeit briefly I think they're kind of in and out of it uh, but only Apple and Saudi Aramco have reached such uh, such dizzying heights yeah. I was kind of hoping you'd skip that story yeah really yeah <laughs> well it took them it took them you know one th- 33 years to get to a trillion yeah. and two years to get that to wasn't on the salacious rumors I, know, but it, I think it's I think it's quite amazing yeah, it's, yeah. It's, you know what I know to be fair trying to, to find fair. out what they're doing wrong listen they're doing everything right yeah. unfortunately but what unfortunately. it does do is it puts Oracle in perspective because if you look at you know Microsoft cloud revenue and then you look at the Oracle earnings announcement yeah you know, which they thought was fantastic, uh, but the market didn't think it was so great because they felt the revenue growth was pretty short of where they hoped it to be. I mean, they were up 8% year on year, but then look at, you know, at, at 11 billion for the quarter. But then you look at, uh, you look at Microsoft and they're 40 billion a quarter and, and double Oracle's uh, cloud revenue. So Oracle are just in the halfpenny place yeah. still when it comes to cloud. And, uh, and, and Larry's still at, attacking everybody. Well, it's like, you know, you've been to sales school where they it. say to you, don't trash the opposition. Speak to your own value. Speak yeah. to what you have. But, but he can't resist. Every time he gets on stage, he talks about his numbers and then he has a go at uh, SAP, you yeah. know, claiming that he's stealing their customers, claiming that his database is, you know, 10x or whatever it is, 100x faster than anything that underpins S- S- SAP. Yeah. And uh, he just can't help himself. Yeah. And then Klein has to come back sometime later and, you know, dispute everything he said. But anyway, it's a bit of a sideshow um, to what's, what's going on. But their stock was down 5%. You know, after the announcement. So. Yeah. Well, the story isn't straight in the market yet. You know what I mean? That they, they, no. they've got a cap, a captive audience yeah. of people who can't get away from them. Well, and, it's a bit. You know, some of the investors saying like it, that they're getting better, but they just lump everything together into something called cloud, and it's it's very hard to hang your hat on it. You know. Well, they have, and they also display all <laughs> this. I mean, all of these companies are the same, but but they have this tendency to do act almost like in a, this monopolistic behavior that they mm. have from mm. time to time that looks that people just don't like. So mm. the customers don't like it, and then they're resistant to actually moving with them. They're actually constantly sitting in rooms figuring out how they get away from each other. Mm, sure. And it, as if you had a business where the, your 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 customers were trying to figure out how they get away from you, that's really. Mm. That's this, you know, and and the only reason they're still with you is because you've got some sort of hold over them. You know, mm. we talked about mm. this before about the yeah, yeah, yeah. Stockholm syndrome, <laughs> captive. Mm. You know, all these things we talked about in the past, yeah, yeah. The, the kidnap, being kidnapped. kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like they just haven't 
figure out that they have to change their interaction with their customers mm-hmm. and then they're not able to do it you yeah. know yeah um, more customer friendly yeah customer centric and, and we have some new guys do, still doing really well i wanted to talk about the zoom story i thought that was and i, and I know it's not quite the heady heights from last year but it's yeah, still it's, re- that, it's still it's, really strong it's still outrageous yeah, yeah. i'm at 191 growth uh so you know they did in the same quarter last year, which is which is uh, first quarter results, three hundred and twenty-eight million, and uh, that was in, that was in one quarter a year ago, fifty-six million. Gee, you know, so that's it's up one hundred ninety-one percent, slightly slowing down, you know, because you know they're now talking about the hybrid model and what how that's going to look, etc. Uh, they've got a crazy number of you know real-time uh, daily active users, but their shares are actually down three percent in twenty twenty-one. So I think. You know, okay, they've got amazing revenues, but I think I don't. I just don't see the growth continuing. Like the S and P is up twelve percent year in on the year, and Zoom, despite that revenue, is down. Yeah, but if 3%. you left, if you leave the share price aside, because they're not, we're not a stock program. That is pretty good revenue growth. Three twenty eight to nine fifty six. That's incredible revenue. Yeah, well, growth. what does that give you? It gives you ammo. You know, you yeah. can take you can take the, the the profit that goes with yeah. it and reinvest. I mean, the share price is is, is a lot of that is speculation. What's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. People betting yeah. on the market. You know, we all, we saw all that with um, what was the retail store uh, GameStop. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and the new one is AMC. Yeah. You know, so there's so. there's always good. I mean, I'm not saying they're in that in that category, but this is what's happening. I mean, I think if you just look at the revenue growth mm-hmm. that that is. That's a, and we ourselves we're seeing it here with the re- jig of the office we're doing. Mm. We're going to have a hybrid kind of workforce go forward. Yeah. You know, well, we're back in the office today, and it's nice to see you know people around. A few heads in the office, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I, we oh, there was one bad story about Microsoft. Guys, lead into our, a our, our yeah, to, yeah. To, the, to the kind of antitrust activity and yeah. well, repair bill stuff we're going to talk about. Well, depending on where you are in the world, if you have a, a webcam and you use it on on your Surface laptop, it could cost you up to four hundred and. Twenty-seven pounds to get it fixed, mostly because Microsoft in the territory that you're in may not be able to fix it. So you have to send it to them. They can't fix it locally. So then they have to send it to some other region. And by the time it gets back to you, you might as well have bought a new one. I guess this is a kind of layman's story about well, why can't I fix it myself? You know, why can't I bring it down to my local fix-it shop and say, hey, here's my laptop. I need a webcam fixed. Fifty quid. Thank yeah. you very much. You know. Well, see, this is the thing. The, the, the whole tech industry needs to be reshaped, to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm really, really encouraged. In, in, in the last couple of weeks, there's been, I don't know, there's five bills going through Congress at the moment, mm. uh, being championed predominantly, and it's, they're bipartisan bills, yeah. very yeah. unusual. I mean, it is probably slightly skewed towards the Democrats because this, yeah. this has been their baby for a long time. And they are, they obviously, the majority in the, in the Congress, but it's bipartisan. And mm. I was listening to a podcast with where they interviewed David Cicilline, the, the Democrat mm. congressman from Rhode Island, and mm-hmm. there's a guy, uh, Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado. And they're both talking about this and actually very much in their sights. I mean, they're talking about Amazon being in their sights. Mm. Um, they've got like ending platform monopolies, monopolies act. They've got a platform anti-monopoly act all about trying to see can they change this this connection even though prices are low price you know price is not the only determinant mm. i was really really encouraged by that having those two champions and i think it's the most aggressive effort in the u.s now for 50 for 50 years yeah. so it's, it's an incredible these one things converge i mean because there's a lot i just said there's like five bills going through congress you know, they're well, we'll, 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 we'll ask Dan that question. Maybe right. he might be able to tell us more in a moment. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I thought it was some. So also, the the national right to repair bill was filed in Congress 
by uh, Congressman Joseph Morrell. Now, I, I don't know if you know, Congressman Joseph Morrell, he's, from, he's a Democratic congressman from New York, uh, recently elected. He actually was pushing, so you know some of the stuff I do with Free ICT. I was also involved yeah. with the setup of the uh, Right to Repair organization in the US. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about all of that was that it has been tried mostly at state level. So state legislation mm-hmm. legislators have been trying to pass fair repair legislation in their states, so not at not a federal level. Mm. And um, actually in 2018, Congressman Morrell had been pushing to have that in, in, in installed in New York Senate. Mm. Failed, didn't even get as far as the floor, but last week it passed. As a national bill? Past week, no, past week it passed in New York. Oh, as New a York. state bill okay. now, it hasn't passed in, in, as a right, national okay, bill. Okay. It's been right. proposed at national level. For the but first time. Uh, but 50% of the states in the United States now mm. have considerations of fair repair legislation going through right. at some stage. It's either mostly it's at kind of uh, the kind of committee stage is where it goes first before it goes yeah, to the floor. Yeah. So I think this is Very really good. interesting. And the other really interesting news, just, you know, and she's all over the papers, mm. uh, Lena Khan. Yes, we can. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, 32 years of age, incredible uh, appointee to the um, the Federal Trade Commission. Very interesting character. I don't know whether I was reading a story about her in the FT and they talked about uh, how she got interested in, in competition. It was in, in, in Halloween. She was trying to buy sweets about 10 years ago. So she would have been obviously in her, maybe in her early 20s. She went in and she saw 40 brands of confectionery in her local store. And realized actually when she looked at them, they're only made by two to three manufacturers. Mm. So right. actually, you look, you think you've choice, but the reality is mm. you've no choice, you're very or very limited choice. So actually, it's I think what's what what is important here. We're getting to see things happening mm. that I think are sweeping changes to antitrust laws, and that's we're talking about the U.S. here. We've talked previously what's going on in Europe. I'm delighted to be joined by our lawyer and friend Dan Sheffield. Now is a very good time to introduce Dan. Dan is uh, of Danish origin. He is a lawyer based in Paris. He's been our guest before. He is a good friend of mine. I'm hopefully going to see him briefly next week when I'm in Paris if I can. He's speaker at many, many uh, highbrow events, including UNESCO and many others. He runs an organization also called the Association for Accountability and Internet Democracy. Dan, welcome. How are you? Well, thank you so much, and and uh, yeah, well, I am. You know, I'm very, very honoured being being on this Irish team. And as you know, my ambition is one day to become Irish myself. But uh, this is at least the start and the beginning. So, <laughs> well, we'll work on the accent first. We'll work on the accent first. That's I'll I'll start next week when we when we meet up, hopefully for some lunch in in, in Paris. But uh, <laughs> looking forward. Tell me, you're 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 hearing us talk there, Dan. About I mean, it's incredible. I mean, we've. We've been seeing a lot of things happen, and you know, you're close to my heart the free, with a free ICT, a lot of really good legislative proposals and changes and, and things happening in Europe. But it's really interesting to see what's happening in the US, and particularly, I think, Lena Khan, um, what's happening there. Um, what's your own thoughts on that? What do you think? Will are they are we because because the pushback from the from the from the large tech companies is is already strong and aggressive but they they don't have as many friends in 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 Europe certainly and then now it would appear they do not certainly if you go back to the Obama and Biden original administration they don't seem to have the same number of friends do they yeah the question of the of the famous revolving doors 
I do have certain opinions on this, and I'm a bit skeptical, not as optimistic as you may yourself be. As you, as you rightly said, uh, this comes from, you know, this is in a European initiative. It's very much a, a personal initiative from Margaret Vestager, the, the, the competition commissioner, as you know, and also the executive vice president. And, and she's been very brave and very courageous in starting cases against some of the tech titans, the Googles and the rest of them. And of course, uh, it has spread, I said, of course, because it's pretty obvious that there is a problem. Uh, so that has spread also to the US and the revolving doors that we had under Obama seems to be um, more or less history now. But why am I skeptical? I'm skeptical because the initiatives, they, 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 there is a major legal problem here. And this is that no legislation can of course be retroactive. That's a basic principle of law. So whatever they will come up with now, be it bipartisan or whatever, cannot really have effects on the existing monopoly, right? Okay. That's point one. Point two is that actually we have laws in the US. Those are the founding antitrust laws, the, the, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, right? These yeah. are acts that were used by Theodore Roosevelt. And they actually introduce a concept which we don't have in Europe, but which to me is more important, I believe, than the new legislative initiatives that we see. And this is the concept of monopolization. The fact that a company is monopolizing, that fact in itself may be a criminal offense. We don't have that in Europe. In Europe, monopolization is not part of the terminology, it's not part of the legal doctrine, neither in the member states nor at the European Commission level. What we have is abuse of a dominant position, right? So arriving at the dominant position in itself, in other words, monopolization, is not an infringement of, of competition law in Europe, but it is the abuse of that position. What, what I think that we are seeing now with these initiatives that you just mentioned in the US is that I believe that you know, there are five different initiatives and that there are five different versions, but if you can say anything in common between the five of them, I believe that they're moving towards maybe adding onto the US antitrust law, this notion of abuse, yeah. which of course very, very interesting because that will bring us probably later to the question of abusing monopolies uh, that have been uh, protected and awarded by government like, like intellectual property law uh, monopolies. But let's wait with that till later. So the, the point I want to make here is that um, since uh, whether or not today in the US you may add abuse as an infringement in its own right, the existing situation, let's, let's use that term, be it abusive or not, I don't see how you could criminalize that because that would have retroactive effect. Of course, the big solution would be breaking up the companies, breaking up the companies like we, like we saw against AT&T and also the initiative back in the 80s against IBM. And breaking up companies, that, that does happen also in the US. Of course, it does happen. It happens more often than, than, than in Europe, by the way. Sure, yeah. And, and to, to, normally to a positive effect. Uh, well, yes, normally. Well, you know, debatable, right? Breaking up AT&T into the Seven Bell Sisters, I read some really interesting analysis of this, uh, which seem to conclude that actually AT&T has more power now than they had before. But, you know, this is the question of how, how the relationship between these companies is structured when it's broken up and later. 
because you yeah. know shares shares live their own life, right? So um, and control is a very difficult legal concept. But let's just say that at least in the short term, breaking up will have some sort of effect. So the, the question is whether these five initiatives include provisions that would allow breaking up the tech monopolies, right? Which means retroactive effect. I don't see that in them. I don't see that in them. So what I'm afraid is that what we have here is something that may apply for the future and it may have an effect on, on future competition, which may not be the intended purpose of this regulation because it may make it, it may actually consolidate the power of the existing companies uh, rather than the opposite. Yeah, okay, okay. I, I probably have a different opinion you, than you because I'm looking at the business we're in of, of repair. And if I look at the 2012 Massachusetts bill that they passed, the Motor Vehicle Owners' Right to Repair Act, which then got transcribed into uh, across at federal level. And indeed in Europe, there was the, uh, the auto repair legislation that was introduced. That, if you look at the auto industry since 2012 and today, the auto industry is a, is a far more innovative industry. There are a huge number of new players in the marketplace. And I would argue that actually it's the, it's the fact that they have removed opportunity, opportunities of, for monopolization, easy opportunities for monopolization, and repair is a classic one. And once you remove that, you force them to look at other areas of innovation and indeed, what happens is it brings in new competition to the market. There may well be a need in the tech industry because there's, so, there's a number, particularly the newer tech players, um, to break some of those up. But I would like to bring the conversation, we have maybe a slight difference of opinion, but I would like to bring the conversation over to how, I mean, as a lawyer, how did they end up with intellectual property rights? Like this? Because what prevents a lot of these things from changing are the, are the rights that we've kind of assigned to all these tech companies um, to a certain extent. I know it's not the exclusive one, but IP seems to me to be one that really prevents a lot of competition, doesn't it? Well, yes, absolutely. And, and you're perfectly right in mentioning just, just a few remarks on the auto repair. Of course, these are not competition laws. They're different laws, but they do have an impact on competition. And, um, and certainly in terms of the automobile industry, it's been very positive impact. But the problem that we have with these big tech titans is, of course, uh, it's two or three things. And I'll get to the, 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 your point on IP. But one of the main concerns is, of course, that they may not be allowing disruptive technology. And I think that's, that's also implied in what you said before. And uh, so they, will, they have such enormous market participation. And the way that they, that they arrived at that market participation is, of course, because they were very strong technologically. I mean, they were not, they were not cutting edge technology, but they were very strong in applying technology. And they, they collected a lot of data, right? Yeah. In addition to that, and now I get to your point, uh, they, they grow and they protect their market powers through intellectual property rights. So you have the data, which is kind of like what, what we call a fait accompli. It's there and they're under no obligation to share it with anyone, except maybe one day they will be in Europe through compulsory licensing. We'll see whether that will happen in the US and if so, whether there'll be a price tag on it. But, but in terms of intellectual property, I mean, that's, that's kind of like old news. Intellectual property has been around for a number of years. And right now we are, we have to ask ourselves the question that we've always had to ask ourselves in terms of intellectual property rights, whether it is stifling or innovating uh, innovation today. And that, of course, brings us to the, to the, to the core question in terms of, 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 of legislation. What do we do with intellectual property rights of these 
companies today, do we allow them to continue with the benefit of these, of these some of the very ancient uh, intellectual property rights that really have nothing to do with technology because they're based on creative authorships and, um, and writing music and stuff like that? Or do we somehow restrict those in, in existing intellectual property rights or do we simply replace them by what I call sui generis rights, which is a third category of new rights adapted to technology? Because are they appropriate? I mean, is it, is it appropriate for uh, technology companies, I mean, particularly software, because right? this, is, this is a show about software. I mean, software publishers get intellectual property rights for products that are on the market for 10 years at absolute most, maybe 12. Uh, I'm talking about enterprise software. I mean, so, some software is even shorter lifespan, but enterprise software, 10, maybe 15 years at most. And it's a 70-year lifespan. I mean, it is. I mean, it was designed initially really for books, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, go, it goes back as far as we talked about this at the press conference we did for, for Free ICT um, where you and the, the, white, the software paper that you helped to draft. We talked about it being an Irish law. Speaking of two Irish guys, uh, there was a, it goes back to the, to the 6th century. So 15, it's 1,500 years. It's from, I was actually looking it up after we spoke. It was Brehan laws. We used to have our own laws here in Ireland before the common law um, called Brehan laws. And it goes back that far. I mean, is it appropriate anymore to be using laws? Okay, I didn't really go into common law probably till, this, till, the, till the 18th century. But um, are, they, are they appropriate rules, really? Absolutely not. And, and this is perfect. I think it's a wonderful story that, that it goes back to the sixth century. And as you, as you also know, it actually cost uh, 3,000 people their lives because it had to do with a, a holy scripture, which was being copied by some other, uh, what we would say, competitive sect. And they were fighting, the, 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 the two kings were fighting over the rights, and 3,000 people died in the course of that battle. Actually, from that from that comes the the idea, the term that he who owns the co- he who owns the cow owns the calf, right? I mean, if you if you write the book, then you own the copies. You own the copy, yeah. <laughs> and probably because they were written on cow hide, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that may be the reason. For yeah. But anyway, this is where it all comes from, and and obviously, it, it makes no sense. I mean, it really makes no sense today. It, it comes from there and it comes from, 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 from really authorship to, 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 to literature and to music. The music industry was very, very important also. It started very much with sheet music. The 1900s, it, it became like uh, very fashionable for every, every family that could afford to have a piano. And then they started buying sheet music. And that's why the musicians and the composers wanted to have intellectual property also apply to music. So, you know, when you get new, a uh, new industry, so to speak, uh, you typically or you will very often apply existing legal regimes to these new industries. And that is what has happened to software more or less automatically. Nobody has really sat down and made a conscious decision. I mean, there were, there were lots of reports written back in the 80s or in the US and Europe whether, whether copyright was the right way of protecting software or whether it should be patent or something else. And the consensus simply developed that, yeah, you know, we know what copyright is, we'll apply it to software, and then it continued like that. And should they have given it patent protection? Would that have been better? Would that be better today? Because patents run out, don't they? They have their they have a fixed and shorter term, isn't that correct? Yes, but at the same time, they give you stronger protection because the, the, the patent protection is 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 based on the claims, while the copyright protection is based on the in principle identical copy. Okay. So, uh, 
you'll, know, have to, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have to explain that one for me, just in layman's terms. What does yeah, that mean? The, the, uh, the, the copyright protection applies to a copy. A copy yeah. means, again, in principle, that you simply take a copy, which means everything is the same. Now, the question is, of course, when you get into copyright cases, uh, how much do you change in order for it no longer to be a copy, right? Yeah, okay. And that's the typical debate that you have, and the poor judge. Uh, has to decide. That's why you have judges that are typically specialized in this or ask experts. You also have it in music. We've had cases with our law firm with music, uh, with somebody, you know, there, there is the famous, there's the famous staircase to heaven, right? Whether there were- Led Zeppelin, people, yes. But also the, the, the Pink Floyd also had a recent case involving copies of, of their albums as such, whether you could actually take out one piece of music from an album and then it was new and it was not a holistic work of art, which the album was. That's yeah. a different legal question. So anyway, when you get into to, 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 to those uh, decisions that a judge has to make, and it's the same as in software, how much do you change in order for this no longer to be a copy? So these are difficult things, but there's a lot of case law that has developed. But if you look at patents, it's not a question of whether it's a copy or not. It's a question of whether it actually fulfills the same claims or the same, as the same um, objectives as those that are described in the patent application, which of course why patent attorneys are very important. And they and, and there the problem is of course that when you when you when you file a patent, you want to have as abstract and as broad cla as claims as possible. And of course, then you get opposition from others against the patent. So yes, patents are not as strong in terms of the duration of the protection, but they are stronger in terms of protecting the function as such. So, so if, if we bring that then, so, the, so, so we are in a position today, IP is what protects software publishers. And I suspect that some of the abusive practices, you know, that we see in the marketplace, the sort of things we see out there, were not envisaged to be allowed when IP was being provided, but they, they happen. And when we, when we had the recent press conference, Dan, you made a very interesting quote, and I, and I paraphrase your quote, but you said, whatever it takes to maintain their own flawed product must be made available free of charge for anybody to use. Otherwise, they shouldn't have put the product in the market in the first place, or they forfeit the license protection. So that's quite a radical and revolutionary, and I very welcome that comment, but your thinking there, if I understand you correctly, was that this goes back to product li liability, doesn't it? They have a right, an obligation. I mean, we see it all, you know, talked earlier about the, the auto repair industry or the auto industry, when cars, which we all know and understand because we all either have drive one or been in one every day, you know, every week, certainly. We understand that when those, when there's a flaw, they withdraw the products. And then, you know, they, no matter how long the flaw happened, you know, you don't see that or do you, you know, as frequently. In fact, what you actually see is this tying. You have to have a contract to have the flaw. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's all, I mean, these are crazy practices, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, the reason for, for this idea, so, you know, was that um, patent is clearly based on a protection with, that is awarded by a patent agency, by a patent office in some country under the laws, and it gives you certain rights, and there's a, there's a patent certificate, and there is a contract, right? Um, copyrights, not. There is no contract. It sort of develops out of the idea. 
And of course, sometimes you have a great problem with when two people claim that they had the same idea at the same time. There's the question of what they call anteriority and so on. But that, those are fact questions and how do you prove that and that kind of thing. But there's no contract the, between a government and an individual. It simply follows from law and from case law. So the concern is that uh, since there is no contract, there's no quid pro quo, there are no corresponding obligations in return for which you get that protection. Right. Hey. That's where the idea comes from to say, okay, let's. It it, it, it's, it makes no sense today that you get that enormous protection, that that monopolistic protection, um, uh, without at least fulfilling some of the normal requirements that you would fulfill in almost any other industry. And one of them is to ensure that your that 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 your product is safe and that it works and it's not flawed. Mm. So that's the logic that brings us, and it's pretty good logic if you ask me, to the conclusion to say that, okay, you want that, you want that contract that gives you protection? Here are the obligations. Yeah, because as you're saying all this, I'm thinking, you know, it's the provi providing intellectual property rights to, it's like, you know, think of a book. If a book is, let's call it flawed, the flaw, the flaw may, may, may be very subjective. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a subjective flaw. We might disagree with it, but it's, it's going to cause, it's unlikely to cause harm, you know, whereas a flaw in a piece of software, you know, we've just seen the harm that was caused to the Irish health system by an, an attack, um, whether it's due to a flaw or not, but, but there was a flaw somewhere along the, along the, along the chain and indeed in the colonial pipeline. Uh, and we see it all the time. These are just two in the mainstream today in the media. But I mean, the more we talk about it, it seems like a crazy and ludicrous decision that we must be we must be able to undo. Absolutely, because in addition to the fact that there is no quid pro quo um, uh, contract uh, with specific obligations that could be fixed by law, when we talk about software. And we uh, then we are in 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 a complete no man's land because they, the the product liability uh, laws do not apply, and that is that that you know that may have made sense one day, may or may not, but it certainly makes no uh, sense any longer as you know reference to the two uh, examples that you just mentioned. Now, of course, let's just step back one minute and when we talk about product liability, uh, which is part of the big conversation as to the limits of intellectual property right, and which is also somehow part of the big conversation in terms of the abuse of dominant position, and therefore also part of the, of the antitrust conversation. But let's just remember that product liability applies to situations where there is no contract, right? Yeah. If you buy, if you, Remember, you, you mentioned the cars, and we all know it started back in the 60s with Ralph Nader, and I think it was General Motors, it may have been Ford, whatever it was. It was a problem with the brakes. The thing is that when you buy a car, you don't enter into a contract at that point in time with General Motors or Ford, you buy it from a car dealer. And the problem is, of course, that the recourse that you have, therefore, under law, under contract law, is against the car dealer, right? Because you don't have a contract with anybody else. And then this idea develops that, hey, wait a second, maybe the company that puts a product on the market is responsible for the qualities or the risks inherent in that product, whether or not that company has entered into a contract with the end user. 
right? That's that. So that that's how this legal dilemma arose because of the 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 absence of a contract. So what we so, so and then that's all started in the '60s, and then now we have product liability laws in most countries in the world saying that you know we really don't care we the the the, the lawmakers whether or not you have a contract with the end user. Once you put a product on the market, you better make sure it's safe. Yeah, I, I, you know, this is oversimplifying, I know, but that's the idea. Yeah. For some odd reason, that uh, philosophy did not apply to services. And software is a service. That may or may not make sense in, by reference to the discussion that we just had, saying that software is not uh, patent protected per se, because when you talk about patent, you think about something that's physical, you think about product. So it makes sense that, it, that it's, it's more a service, even though, as we know, that some uh, software is patentable. But let's forget that a second. But it's, there is no contradiction between those two theories, right? They're saying that it's subject to copyright uh, and saying that it's a service. So, but, but the consequence is that the product liability legislation does not apply directly to software. We've seen, uh, we've seen ways of dealing with this in terms of the security exposure that you just mentioned in, for instance, the GDPR. The GDPR has very strict obligations on companies to, which you may call a duty of care or fiduciary obligation, but mainly I would call it a duty of care obligation, that when you collect data, you have to be sure that that data is safe and you as the company that retains the data, whether it's cloud-based or whether, whether you, you are the company that actually retains in the first place, you have certain obligations to make sure that that data does not fall into the wrong hands. And one of these obligations is very much data security. And that means cybersecurity, that means antivirus, anti-hacking and so on and so forth. So you have these obligations, but they really only apply within the privacy environment, the data environment, and what you just mentioned in terms of protecting infrastructure, right? These the, yeah. the pipelines and so on. It's something to do with data privacy, but it may be even more dangerous to society if the uh, you know if hospitals don't fail and nuclear power plants fail. Then yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. These uh, privacy, right? And and here, of course, uh, there are there are cases and there are attempts to say that companies that are in a position where they are in charge of some sort of critical infrastructure service, they have these obligations also to make sure that, 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 it, that it's safe and that it's secure. But typically those obligations are based on contract, all right? Contract with the, with the, with the government, with some utility or something like that. So you get back to contractual obligations. What we need is a law, a law that, 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 that irrespective of the existence of a contract or not, the simple fact that you put something on the market like, like any other product, uh, whether it's software or not, entails certain obligations in terms of quality assurance. And that's really what it boils down to. What we see is, believe it or not, that the European Directive dates back from 1985. It's perfectly ridiculous. It hasn't been re revised yet. The European Commission is working on it. They've done quite a lot over the last two, two or three years. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see something. Are you, are you confident we'll see something? That's because you, you started with maybe a bit of opt a, a pessimism about what's going to happen with the current bills, and I, I accept what you're saying there. But in general, where, are you confident that you, you, we're, we're seeing, we may see something like that at some point? My, my, my skepticism uh, relates to antitrust. Not to the other bills. I, I mean, okay. So I, I guess we were we were putting everything in a legislative basket, yeah. and you're you're looking specifically at antitrust. So so where is your optimism then? 
So my optimism, apart apart from the the the, the antitrust, where I have this problem with retroactivity and and whether I can really break up companies and and whether the abuse needs to be proven or whether monopolization is sufficient and all of that, a lot of legal problems. And I'm afraid that if we do not include provisions, especially in the U.S., as to breakups that may be necessary for other reasons than just economic reasons. There may be reasons like de protecting democracy and so on. What's wrong with introducing those reasons in antitrust? Antitrust is a, is a political instrument. So I don't see any problem with introducing those reasons. But those are very difficult and very contentious. And I'm pretty sure that they won't be bipartisan. But in the absence of that, in the absence of that, I, I, I'm very skeptical as to the real effect as to the existing monopolies both in Europe and in the US. Now, apart from that, uh, we have a lot of very interesting trends, which is, for instance, the, um, the product liability, the, 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 the repair, uh, the renewable energy, the eco-designs, and the rest of them. And one which I find extremely interesting, apart from the one I just mentioned, which is the compulsory licensing, is the uh, draft act on artificial intelligence. That yeah. one is very, very, very interesting because um, it was it was only released here in, in, in April, um, and strangely enough, it hasn't attracted so much attention. I think it's 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 more important than the Digital Services Act, the Digital Marketing Act, and the Digital Governance Act, because not only because artificial intelligence is the future, but also because it includes legal concepts that can be applied directly to what, what interests us, which is intellectual property and which is also uh, product liability. The very quickly in terms of product liability, the act, the draft act says that, again, I'm simplifying a lot, that when you put in an artificial intelligence product, all right, product, not service. Yeah, the they, are, they are products effectively. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's already, we crossed that bridge already, right? Yeah. When you put that on the market, uh, you have to ensure you, the manufacturer, um, when I talk about products, about manufacturer, right? That it meets certain quality criteria. And those are of a technical and also an ethical nature. And um, so what we introduce here is that for software, because artificial intelligence is software, quality criteria, which, are, which have to be met. And especially if, and if they're not met, there, there are both civil damages and there are fines. And you know how big the fines are under the draft Artificial Intelligence Act? No. 6% of global turnover. How does that compare to GDPR? Is that not similar? 4%. 4%, okay, okay. So, so it's very yeah. interesting to see that the European Commission actually prioritizes or, or finds it more hurtful, right? To put a, a, something on the market that has nefarious consequences like artificial intelligence than, 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 than infringing privacy rights. I would have made some suggest <clears throat> suggestion there, Dan. I would have said, make, make it not 6% of global revenue, make it 6% of your market cap. <laughs> yeah, that's what they should be doing. But anyway, so, you're, so listen, Dan, it sounds to me, you are you have optimism there, which is great, and we love to we love to finish the show on an optimistic note. I'm delighted that we we've, we've been able to. I mean, I love I, I, your explanation of intellectual property rights and how they started. I love that. Mm. I think there's a there's a long way to go on this. this these things don't happen quickly, but they, it looks like there's a movement. I get a feeling now, being in the the market for 
we I, I set up free ICT in 2014, seeing what's happened le- legislatively. I think there's a movement to help businesses mm. uh, um, have more choice, have more freedoms, and fix the things that they own. Mm. <laughs> That's what they want, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, wh- why shouldn't if I deploy software and it's not working, should I not be able to fix it myself? Yeah. Like. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, as opposed to paying the author of it to fix the bugs that they introduced in the first place, which yeah. is what maintenance is. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we'll we'll get there. There's a new there's a new world order coming. Yeah. Dan, yeah. as always, thank you. You've stimulated a lot of thoughts in my head. That was highly educational. Yeah, intriguing. It really, it really was. And, yeah. and I know there's a lot more you you could have told us on that. I'm, I'm sure plenty of stories there. So we'll. We'll catch up again. I hope to see you next week. That's it, Brendan. We're done for another yeah, show. Say sir. I know. I know. Say I never right. even actually mentioned the story there, but like the ITV story and Amazon dumping 130,000 products from one center in Scotland. But you we might come. We, yeah. we, we might come on to that one again. That, that was sounds like, pretty scurrilous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Check it out on ITV.com. There you go. Right. Uh, <laughs> listen, oh, a great show. Good to talk to you again. And you. Yeah. Um, good to have Dan on. Thanks, Dan. We look forward to chatting to you again very soon. And everybody out there, have a great day. A tout à l'heure, Dan. Yeah. Hey, bon show. It was a great pleasure being with you. And, and who knows, maybe one day I'll become Irish. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that next week. Take but the, care. But that. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.